All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I've entitled this morning's message, A Walking Miracle. A Walking Miracle. A little play on words regarding the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. As I was thinking about this concept of a walking miracle, because you and I have no doubt heard that phrase that someone, maybe through an accident or some devastating circumstance, uh, survives and flourishes, and we say about them, they are a walking miracle. And that has hit home very close to me, even though I was somewhat removed from that. My wife, Beth, reminded me this week of one of those things that you might call a walking miracle, and that is uh, her sister, Amy. About 27 years ago now, when uh, my wife, Beth, was about nine years old, and her sister, Amy, was about seven, they were jockeying for a position in the front seat of their parents' big, huge uh, Chevrolet station wagon. You know, those big, long boats that had the big, heavy doors. And they were jockeying for a position to see who would sit in the front. And I think Beth won because she was able to go up front and Amy went into the back. And uh, their father uh, was going to take them on uh, an errand somewhere. And they lived in Sioux City, Iowa. My wife is a Sioux City Sioux. And they were going somewhere and they were in this big station wagon. And they lived on a very steep hill in a house that they lived in all of their life as they were growing up there in Sioux City. And when they turned the corner to go up this steep hill, apparently Amy's door had not closed completely. And that door swung wide open and uh, Amy was close to falling out and she apparently, as they speculated, was able to grab a hold of something and did not completely fall out of the car until the door itself swung back and crushed her head. And she landed in the street. And because of some of that noise and commotion, Beth turned around and didn't see anybody in the back seat and then she looked back uh, through the glass of the back of the station wagon and saw Amy laying on the ground. And her father did as well and so they pulled off on the side of the road and they went, ran back and looked at little Amy on the ground, little seven-year-old little girl, and they saw her in a pool of blood. Apparently what had happened was the door had uh, crushed her from the front of her face toward the back and they did not find any pulse, uh, any heart rate with Amy. And they were very concerned, obviously, that she had died in this accident. And they instructed Beth to go to a nearby neighbor's home and to call the police. And the paramedics came very, very quickly. And in the providence of God, uh, they discovered that in the city of Sioux City, they had five or six hospitals that operated, and that they had a trauma unit that switched to each alternating hospital uh, on a rotating schedule, and as the Lord would have it, the trauma center was housed in the hospital that was nearest to where this accident occurred. And so the paramedics uh, rushed 
uh, this child to that particular hospital, and it also happened in God's providence that all of the best surgeons of the city were having a meeting there at the hospital right at the moment that Amy was rushed in. She was rushed in. They did everything they could to feverishly bring her back to life uh, by using CPR and other means, of course. Uh, she was declared dead on arrival, and she went um, into the hospital bed because they couldn't do immediate surgery because her, her head was so swollen uh, that uh, it was uh, the size of the pillow that she was laying on. And the doctor said, we need to allow this swelling to go down. And they continued to work on her. And in God's graciousness and maybe a walking miracle, her pulse rate returned. Her heart began to beat again. And God, in his wonderful grace, gave her the opportunity to survive. In the ensuing weeks, they discovered when the swelling went down that all of the jawbone of her face had been broken, actually out because of the compression of her face. All of her uh, jaw was broken on both sides. Uh, both of her eye sockets uh, had been completely destroyed. Uh, both uh, her, um, her ears were crushed as well. Her nose had been uh, smashed completely. And even when they were able to do some surgery around the area of her eye sockets, uh, at one point during the surgery, the doctor had located one of her 12-year molars right up here in between her eyes. That's how hard this impact crushed her head. Uh, she had multiple skull fractures as well. But again, in God's wonderful provision, maybe a miracle, we don't know, uh, her face was completely reconstructed. Uh, her skull was reconstructed. She had no permanent brain damage whatsoever. Her eyes were completely rebuilt. Her nose was completely rebuilt, although it later um, uh, again was depressed and she had to fly to uh, New York. And one of the surgeons there in Sioux City accompanied her, watched a new procedure being done, and she came back. And actually from that surgery, it fell again. And the surgeon in Sioux City was able to do the operation again to restore her nose. Uh, she had, as I said, no permanent brain damage whatsoever. She has no long-lasting effects of the accident whatsoever. You could not tell that she was in a wreck at all, save maybe a few little scars around her eye sockets, and she has completely recovered. In fact, she continued to grow throughout her life as a normal young person. She had the accident in November 27 years ago and was home by Christmas. God had completely done a, a marvelous work, uh, both either miraculously and also through the skill of the doctors and nurses. And she continued to grow in her young life, and uh, she later went on to the Moody Bible Institute where she met her husband, Mike. And for the last 10 years, they've served the Lord in the Republic of Ireland as missionaries. And God has continued to bless their life. They now have three beautiful children. And if you were to see Amy, maybe you will have the opportunity to see her at some point. They're scheduled to come uh, around and visit us in the summer for a seven-and-a-half-month uh, sabbatical time. You might be able to meet her, and you would rejoice at God's goodness to her. And she's that kind of person, at least from what I have seen and experienced as she has told me that story, of maybe one of those that you could call a walking miracle. And God has done, obviously, at His bidding, a work in her heart to give her the opportunity to support her husband as he's a pastor. 
in Ireland. And what a wonderful account that is. But even something like that, which sounds incredibly challenging to even perceive how a person could survive something like that, even something, as we might say, miraculous as that, it pales in comparison with what we know for sure is a walking miracle of a different sort. And that is Jesus himself as recorded here in Mark chapter 6. It says in verse 45, Immediately Jesus made his disciples go into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and cried out, for they, were, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You know from what we've already discussed in this particular sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel that Mark is intending to tell us very clearly that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Mark doesn't always put everything in precise chronological order. He has a different purpose. And his purpose is to stack up all of the accounts that Jesus experienced of his deity. And this is one of those sections. Whenever a writer wants to make a point, he ensures that by making that point, you will understand unmistakably after he's through what that point really is. And Mark's point here is to present Jesus as the divine Messiah. And this walk on the water is obviously an example. Now, I want you to notice the context here of this passage because it's important to understand the truth of the Word of God in this section of Scripture. In verse 45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples go into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. Now the context of that passage is this. When Jesus forced, literally, the disciples to go into the boat, because that word, Jesus made the disciples go into the boat, is a very strong word. He compelled them. And he compelled them for, I'm sure, many reasons that we don't understand, but one that I think we readily could. And that is this, all throughout Jesus' ministry, there were the crowds around him that he healed, that he cast devils out of, that he taught concerning the kingdom of God. And there were periods, times of apex, where he would so heal the crowd, he would so teach the multitudes, that there began a, a resurgence that maybe this indeed was the Messiah, at least a great prophet. And there was a temptation on the part of the crowd to coronate Jesus at any one point as the king of the Jews and to begin to install him somehow against the Roman government. And this may well be one of those times. Can you imagine these 
5,000 plus people who have just been fed by loaves and fishes, and they would be incredibly affirming of Jesus as the miracle worker, the king of the Jews, the great prophet, maybe even John the Baptist reincarnate. And they would for sure want to make this Jesus, even if they didn't believe he was Messiah, the Messiah, so that he could then take on the Roman government on the people's behalf. And maybe this was one of those times, and maybe the disciples themselves had also been duped into thinking that Jesus was going to take a sword and proclaim himself as the king of the Jews and now take over the system of government at the time. And it could very well be that that is one among many reasons why Jesus said, no. No, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the other side now of the Sea of Galilee against apparently their great protest. So he forced them to go into the, boat, into the boat and then he went off by himself. And verse 46 says, He left for the mountain to pray after bidding them farewell. Now we know that he had been proclaimed the great prophet, but he certainly knew also that it was very premature for him to be coronated as the king of the Jews. Not at this time. It was true of him, but he didn't want that to occur at this point, he knew that he must go to the cross and must die and suffer. And so, he goes to the mountain to pray. People often ask me the question, in this account and so many others, they say, what did he pray about? And of course I answer, I have no idea. The scripture doesn't tell us often what Jesus prayed about. We know that he spent all night in prayer to God for the choice of the disciples. We know that there were other things he was praying, and I guess you could say generically that when Jesus spent hours upon hours praying to his heavenly Father, it was no doubt for the purpose of communion and with the idea of continual obedience to the Father's will. And this is one of those examples. We know for sure that this was somewhere around sundown, and then the Bible also says later on in this passage that it was about the fourth watch of the night that he began walking on the water. That's about 3 a.m. And so we know for approximately six to eight hours, Jesus was praying on that mountain, communing with his heavenly Father. I wish we had time to talk about the prayer life of Christ this morning because this is one of those great texts that shows us the insight of the hours that he spent communing with God, but we don't have time. We do know this that whatever was going on with the mob, the crowd, if they wanted to install him right then, then the disciples would soon follow. And Jesus didn't want that, and so he sent them away. In fact, William Lane, one of the great commentators on Mark, says it this way. John 6.14 states that the people recognized Jesus as the promised, promised eschatological prophet and determined to proclaim him king. The tension of messianic excitement was dangerously in the air after the meal in the desert. The hurried dismissal of the disciples prevented them from adding fuel to the fire by revealing to the people the miraculous character of the evening meal. Jesus remained to pacify and dismiss the unruly crowd. His retreat to the hillside for prayer and the subsequent withdrawal from Galilee are the direct result of the outburst of enthusiasm which followed the feeding of the multitude. Jesus refused to be the warrior Messiah of popular expectations. And when he stayed behind, he prayed. And when he prayed, he asked God for guidance 
He asked the Father for uh, strength and comfort, which He knew He needed. And He communes with His heavenly Father. And He also, no doubt, is gaining direction for His next move. And that next move, as you know, occurs that very night. About 3 o'clock in the morning, the disciples, according to this text, are rowing strenuously. In fact, so much so that the wind is going in the opposite direction of the way they're going. And if you've ever been on the Sea of Galilee, you know how difficult that is. It may have even been that the wind was so strong that as they continued to row, the wind just pushed them directly off course, and now they were lost, not knowing exactly where they were. The waves were probably choppy. They had no idea what to do next. They were terrified. They were frightened. They believed that they might perish. And from the distance, maybe with the moon as the light, maybe not, maybe what God Himself was providing, they saw a figure from the distance. And that figure was Christ Himself. And the Bible says very, very clearly in this passage these words. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Did you notice that little phrase? He intended to pass by them? Isn't that provocative? You would assume that if Jesus wanted to reveal himself as God in human flesh, that he wouldn't simply pass by them, but that he would do what? He would stop right where they were. And standing with both feet, on water, which would have been the miracle of all miracles to that which they have seen yet thus far. He could proclaim His deity. He could talk with them about His Messiahship, and they would understand exactly what was going on. Apparently, that was not the intention of Christ. It says there, He intended to pass by them. And I ask myself the question, why? Why does the Bible say that He intended to pass by them? It almost makes it sound as though they were incidental to the process and that He was only using a, an alternate route to go to the other side. What was going on here? What was the intention of Christ? Well, do you remember I said to you last week that in John chapter 6, in the parallel account of the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus asked Philip, one of the disciples, about the meal. And you remember Philip said... Lord, we don't have enough money. How can we feed all of these people? And the Bible says he asked him that question so that he might what? Test him. In other words, I want you, Philip, to affirm that I can feed this multitude and therefore see that I am in fact God in human flesh. And when this text says the same thing, he intended to pass by them. There's a plan. And that plan is to do none other than to show these very disciples the exact same thing, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. In fact, that Jesus Christ Himself is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Remember now, these are Jews. And these disciples being Jewish, they would know very well their Old Testament, right? And as they would read their Old Testament, do you assume that any passage 
would come to their mind that would affirm that God is in control of all of the water and that God himself would be walking on such water. Don't you assume that if they knew that from their Old Testaments, Jesus walking by them on the water would clue them in immediately that this is God in human flesh? It should. It should have been like that. In fact, if they were to read Genesis chapter 32 and the instance of Jacob wrestling with the angel, the Bible says that the face of God passed by Jacob when he was wrestling with the angel. And it's the very same idea of Jesus passing by these disciples. That is why the Bible says right here that when he was passing by them, it should have clued them in immediately to the idea that this is God passing by. That's exactly why I read to you Exodus chapter 33. God said to Moses, you cannot see all of my glory, but one thing I will allow you to do is to hide you in the cleft of, my, of, of the rock, take my hand and put it over your face, and then only allow you to see the back part of me as I, what? Pass by. In fact, that very verb that's used in Mark 6 is used in the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint in some of these very texts, the exact same word. The Jews would have known this. They would have known exactly what Jesus was all about. When the Bible says that He intended to pass by them, it was intended to show them His transcendent majesty, His glory, that He is God in human flesh. I love what Job says in Job 9. If Peter or James or John or Philip had read from the scroll of Job's account, maybe even the first book of the Bible ever written chronologically, they would read this, He, that is God, treads on the waves of the sea when He passes me. And they would have said, Aha, I know, I know what's happening here. The waves are crashing in and the wind is blowing, but God is passing me and he's treading on the sea. Or how about 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12? Or how about Isaiah 43? Or how about Isaiah 51, 10? Or how about Habakkuk 3, 15, where it says that God is portrayed as one who tramples the sea with horses and shows that he has the power to control the chaos of the sea in order to deliver his people Israel. You see, whether it's in Exodus, or Deuteronomy, or Genesis, or Isaiah or Job, wherever in your Old Testament you find that God is treading the seas, it should have been an open book for the disciples. They should have passed the test. They should have said, yes, this is God. God is in our midst. And do you remember in the Exodus 33 account where God shows Moses His glory? And if you backed up several chapters and you came to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and Moses were to say to God, God, whom shall I say sent me? And what was Yahweh's response? I am that I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. That is the self-sustaining one, the self-existing one, the God who is present with His people to deliver them from whatever, whether it's the Exodus deliverance or whether it's men in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And if they didn't understand it then, they should have the moment he said this. When he 
saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. This could legitimately be translated, Take courage, it is I am. I am is present with you. Does that send chills down your spine? It does me. For if I were there, if I were sloshing around in that boat thinking of imminent death, and I saw what appeared at first from the distance to be a ghost, and when I saw Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one whom I just saw perform the miracle of the loaves and fishes, the one who I'm, I've heard teach concerning the kingdom of God, and as he passes by, my mind immediately is flooded with those passages that says, I, God, am the one who treads upon the seas, and it is I, even I am. I might have responded and said, You are God. You are that one. David Garland says it this way, When Jesus wants to pass by his disciples... He wills for them to see His transcendent majesty as a divine being and to give them reassurance. Oh, what, a, what an account. What if you were one of the twelve? What if you were in that boat? Would you learn the lesson? Would you respond to what Jesus is endeavoring to show you? You remember Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was what? I am. Would you have affirmed it? Would you have believed it? Would you have repented of your sins? And would you have come to faith in Christ because you would have affirmed that I am was present with you? Many of us would say, absolutely. Absolutely but apparently not for these disciples. Because even after he did what he did, and even after he said what he said, and even after all of the things that they've seen up to this point, verse 51 says, Then he went into the boat with them, which should have been something else that would have been extremely reassuring. Why? Because the wind stopped. Holy God had just come in your boat. But they were frightened, astonished, maybe frightened more by his presence than his absence. Did they learn? Did they pass the test? Verse 52. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When you respond to the message of a text like this. And you're called upon, as all of us are, to affirm that Jesus is the only Son of God, the unique one who walks on the water. Does your heart harden? Do you say, oh, it's a fable, as so many do, discounting it, saying it can't happen? This is no walking miracle. This is foolish. Or you say, no, I'm a Christian and I believe that this account was true and that I also believe that 
Jesus Christ can be trusted, how great is your trust? How firm is your faith? Especially when you and I are blown off course and we're not able to come back on track until we repent and believe and trust Christ yet again. How firm is your faith? Are you in the boat of life against the wind of trials and temptations and it's blowing you all over the place and you're thinking of impending death? Or do you see Christ? Do you trust Him? Do you ask Him to lead you? Do you forsake all of your own resources and say, Lord, I don't know what the future holds. I know I'm off course, but all I have to do is look to Christ and see Him as my only sufficiency. He's going to lead me to a right path. Aren't you glad Jesus was so patient with those disciples? And He could have said right then, All right, men, that's it. I've given you every opportunity to affirm who I am. That's it. My patience has run out. But he doesn't. In fact, he never really sees, at least physically, their response with complete trust and faith until the Holy Spirit has preceded Christ and opened their blind eyes and they affirmed the truth of everything that he did and said. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad God did that with me opening up my blind eyes, taking the spiritual cataracts, as it were, off my eyes so that I could see Christ for who He really is, God in human flesh, believing in Him, trusting Him by faith, trusting in Him as the Savior of my soul, not vacillating, responding fearfully to life because Christ has opened up a way for the right course. It doesn't mean that every single time he comes into my boat that the winds stop. But it does mean that every time I allow the control of my life to be fully his, I have no reason to fear whatsoever. You need a walking miracle today? You need Christ today. You know, there are no doubt some among us in this room who have never given their lives to Christ. You've never trusted Christ. You know who Christ is. But you've never bowed your knee to His Lordship. Uh, you may affirm, oh yes, He is the one who walked on the water. I affirm that. I believe that that's who Jesus Christ is. But Jesus asks for more than that. He asks you, no, He commands you to bend to His Lordship. He says, I am the King of the Jews. And I am the Lord of all life. And you must submit to me as Lord. You think ultimately the Jews, even of our own day, see this walking miracle and affirm it? I was interested this week. I read it and Wanda Girk also gave me a copy. Headline, Bridge on Sea of Galilee to Allow Pilgrims to Walk on Water. You see that? Israel's National Parks Authority has authorized construction of a submerged bridge on the Sea of Galilee which will allow tourists to simulate Jesus' miraculous walk on water. The wire service quoted an official as saying that after researching the idea and reviewing the plans, he concluded it would, quote, not hurt the feelings of the Christian tourists 
and it would not be too kitschy, so we decided to go with it, unquote. The span to be built by a private contractor will be in place by August, according to the report. It will be at Capernaum, the site where tradition says Jesus' walk on water, reported in the Gospels, took place. The 13-foot-wide, 28-foot-long floating bridge will be submerged two inches below the water's surface and will accommodate up to 50 people. To enhance the effect, it will not have handrails. Lifeguards and boats will be on hand in case a walker slips off. Now, I don't think that's a miracle at all. You know, that just shows me one thing unmistakably. They missed the point of the passage. I don't want any of you to miss the point of the passage. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He's the Lord of the water. And if He chooses to walk on that water to show you and I who He really is, then He has the sovereign right to do so. And He did. And now you know. I challenge you to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only one who can redeem your soul. And if you come to the end of this service, and if you walk from this place, and you hadn't bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, that's the ultimate missing of the point of this passage. Come to Christ. Believe in Him right now. Let's bow our heads. Father, as the songwriters have well said, not our choice the wind's direction, unforeseen the calm or gale. The great ocean swells before us and our ship seems small and frail. Fierce and gleaming is thy mystery, drawing us to shores unknown. Plunge us on with hope and courage till thy harbor is our home. Oh, Father, I pray that there would not be anyone here who has for their life long said no to Christ, said yes to their sin, to being like these hardened followers. I pray that you would open up their eyes, even now, that they would submit to Jesus Christ as Lord of the water, so that they would not miss the point of the passage. Father, I pray that you would bring to those who need it most salvation that can only be granted us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.